So I'm going to start with a story. <clears throat> you might remember this day. It was a Wednesday in early September when many of us awoke last year to skies that looked like they were from another planet. You remember that? Even after the sun had risen, the skies remained dark and filled with a yellow orange hue. People came out of their homes and stood on sidewalks and in streets taking photos of the strange apocalyptic sky, pictures that confounded the smartphone filters and couldn't quite reflect what we were actually seeing on the ground. It was wildfire season, one of the worst in history. And the impact on that particular day of the sky was this eerie example of the way our climate is changing and the impacts that that may have on the livability of the gorgeous place we call home in the Bay Area. It was a sobering day to witness. But for Jason and I, my husband and I, the day also resonated in a unique way because this day was the very end of our 10-day contingency period for the house that we had just become under contract to purchase. The whole process had been a total whirlwind to that point in which only three weeks after formally looking, beginning to look, formally beginning to look at houses with a realtor, we had our first offer accepted, something we had in no way expected to happen or felt prepared for. And now this was our last day to make a final decision on whether we wanted to move forward with investing all our worldly assets in this piece of property in Berkeley or whether we wanted to walk away from the house altogether. Jason and I had been doing everything we could leading up to this day to confirm that the house would work for us, but all the questions we'd hoped to answer weren't actually resolved. There were reasons to hope things could work out well if we moved ahead, but it was clear it was gonna be a bit of a leap of faith. So we spent sleepless nights tossing and turning leading up to that September day. And then we awoke to dark orange skies. Was this some sort of ominous sign? Was the universe telling us like, no, don't do it in big orange letters? As the day went on and our deadline approached, there were a mix of emotions, fear, hope, frustration at all the things we couldn't know that day, concern for the future. But then as we acknowledged both our anxieties, but also our reasons for moving forward with hope, there arose a different kind of feeling. I would call it resolve. Yes, there was uncertainty about how this house would work. There was concern about what the future held for Berkeley and the Bay Area but we also felt clearly our attachment to this place. You see, Jason and I had been on such a journey before we ever even moved to the Bay Area, hoping and praying that we could someday make a life here in Berkeley, that he could work as a software engineer here, that I could start a faith community, that we could raise our children, that we could send them to Berkeley schools. And all of those things were now happening. Six years in, we felt called to Berkeley as much, if not more, than we ever had. And it was no longer aspirational. This was the place we were putting down roots. 
we understood more than we once had the weaknesses of this place, the inconsistencies, the challenges, the disappointments, and yes, the real climate risks of making a life here. But we also understood that there were people we loved here. There's a culture we appreciate. There's a sense of purpose we each feel called to in our own way as we seek to participate in helping this place become more just, more equitable, more inclusive, more livable for all. And so a kind of resolve took root. It was like saying, damn the smoke, damn the flames. This is our home. We've been given an opportunity that may not come again to invest in this place more deeply than we've yet been able to. And so if this city is going down fighting, we're going to go down fighting with it. We called our realtor. We told her to remove the contingencies. We popped the bottle of champagne. We looked at the orange sky and we made a toast to Berkeley and our new home here. And we felt both gratitude and a lot of gravity. Whatever the future held for us here, we understood more deeply. We were committed to it. Let's share this story to introduce our topic for today as we come into this home stretch on our Recovering the Sacred teaching series. We're coming to the end of this look we've been taking this summer at Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, though we're going to be long in the process of reorder, rebuilding that we've been naming, even after we finish the series. In this series, we're considering how this particular Jewish community whose stories told in these two books rebuilt after the time of disruption and trauma, after the exile, just as we ourselves are trying to do now, trying to rebuild. And today's story invites us to consider some of what Jason and I were considering, I think, that strange September day. So there's a lot of text to this story. I'm just going to give you that um, up front, a heads up. It's told throughout chapters 9 and 10 of Nehemiah. I'm going to be summarizing some of it and then reading some excerpts. If you'd like, you can go back later and read the whole thing. Uh, but the setup is that it's a few weeks after um, the story we looked at last week on Zoom, for those of you who are there. The people in that story had held this rally where they listened to these sacred texts being read for the first time in generations. And then they enacted one of the festivals that they heard about, the Festival of Tabernacles. And, and they were continuing to like reacquaint themselves in that season with their sacred stories, with their texts, with their history. And, um, and, this, and that kind of leads up to the story we're looking at today, which happens a few weeks later. They're holding another big communal assembly and it, it seems to be kind of a time of response to this deep kind of revival Bible study thing they've been doing. And it begins with a session of repentance, where the people are confessing the ways they've fallen short of what they believe God intended for them. They wear sackcloth. They put ashes on their heads as they communally come together and confess their sins. And then this group of leaders named the Levites they invite all the people to rise, and they begin to pray this kind of confessional prayer on behalf of all the people assembled. And that's where we're going to pick up the story with the beginning of that prayer. And this is um, Nehemiah 
chapter nine, starting with verse five. So I'll just, I'll just start us off as um, the Levites are beginning to pray. May you be blessed, O Lord, our God, from age to age. May your glorious name be blessed. May it be lifted up above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, along with all their multitude of stars, the earth and all that's on it, the seas and all that is in them. You impart life to them all, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him forth from Ur of the Chaldeans. You changed his name to Abraham. When you perceived that his heart was faithful toward you, you established a covenant with him to give his descendants the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites. You have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our ancestors in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea. You performed awesome signs against Pharaoh, against his servants, against all the people of his land, for you knew that the Egyptians had acted presumptuously against them. You made for yourself a name that is celebrated to this day. All right, I'll summarize a little bit. He goes on and on. This prayer goes on in describing um, the details of the delivery from slavery in Egypt, the provision of food and drink in the wilderness, the giving of law at Mount Sinai. We'll pick up a little after that. But they, our ancestors, behaved presumptuously. They rebelled and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey, did not recall your miracles that you had performed among them. Instead, they rebelled and appointed a leader to return to their bondage in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and failing in your loyal love. You did not abandon them, even when they made a cast image of a calf for themselves and said, this is your God who brought you up from Egypt, or when they committed atrocious blasphemies due to your great compassion you did not abandon them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not stop guiding them in the path by day, nor did the pillar of fire stop illuminating for them by night the path on which they should travel. Skipping ahead a bit more, the prayer goes on like this with a lot more of accounting of Israel's history, including God's initiative to care for them, the people's rebellion again and again, and God's merciful response. Okay, we'll kind of skip towards the end of that section. So now our God, the great, powerful, awesome God who keeps covenant fidelity, do not regard as inconsequential all the hardship that has befallen us, our kings, our leaders, our priests, our prophets, our ancestors, all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until this very day. You are righteous with regard to all that has happened to us, for you've acted faithfully. It is we who've been in the wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, our ancestors have not kept your law. They've not paid attention to your commandments or your testimonies by which you have solemnly admonished them, even when they were in their kingdom and benefiting from your incredible goodness that you had lavished on them in the spacious and fertile land you had set before them. They did not serve you, nor did they turn from their evil practices. So today, we are slaves in the very land you gave to our ancestors to eat its fruit and to enjoy its good things. We are slaves. Its abundant pr produce goes to the kings you've placed over us due to our sins. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they see fit, and we are in great distress. 
And because of all this, we're rounding the bend here. We are entering into a binding covenant in a written form. Our leaders, our Levites, our priests have affixed their names on this sealed document. End of the prayer. And then it says, on the sealed documents were the following names. Nehemiah, the governor's son of Halkaliah, along with Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, and then count, the list goes on. It lists 82 names of various leaders. Okay, I told you, I'm going to summarize here. Um, I'm going to spare you the rest of the names. Skip to what happens at the end of the list of all of these people who apparently have signed on to this document. Now, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple attendants, all those who have separated themselves from the neighboring peoples because of the law of God, along with their wives, their sons, their daughters, all of whom are able to understand, hereby participate with their colleagues, the town leaders, and enter into a curse and an oath to adhere to the law of God, which was given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, along with his ordinances and statutes. So we will not give our daughters in marriage to the neighboring people. We will not take their daughters in marriage for our sons. We will not buy on the Sabbath or on a holy day from the neighboring peoples who bring their wares and all kinds of grain to sell on the Sabbath day. We will let the fields lie follow every seventh year. We will cancel every loan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In summary, the chapter goes on from there with a list of more and more pledges the people are now making to follow these laws as they understand them, that they believe God had given to Moses, finally ending this whole great pledge, these two chapters with the last verse of chapter 10, as the people say, we will not neglect the temple of our God. Last line of this story. So what is this story about? <laughs> and what might it actually have to do with any of us? What, what might be helpful here? Essentially, these two chapters of Nehemiah that I've been reading from tell the story of a community in Jerusalem of former exiles gathering to formerly, formally renew a covenant that they believe God had made with their people. There's a lot of pomp and circumstance. You can probably get that. There's lots of proclamation. There's this very solemn pledge to Yahweh. And as Nehemiah relates it, this clearly is an important part of the restoration of their community. This is chapters 9 and 10 of 12 chapters in Nehemiah. This is kind of the climax, heading towards the climax of the story. So we can't just like skip it. There must be something for us here. Okay, what is it? Why is this moment so critical for them? To get a sense of that, I think we need to have a better understanding of this practice that's at the center of the drama, the practice of making a covenant. What is a covenant? If you study the Bible much in the past, you might, you're probably familiar with the term. It gets a lot of play, particularly in the Hebrew Bible. But essentially, a covenant as it appears throughout scripture is a kind of sacred commitment, a sacred commitment. It's like a contract, a very serious promise between two parties that's often bound by some sort of oath or vow. Throughout the Bible, covenants appear as agreements of deep spiritual significance between God, known as Yahweh in much of the Hebrew Bible, and the people whose story is being followed, the, the people of Israel. And as we heard in the text today, these people understand themselves to be in a unique 
relationship with the divine that has been solidified through the years, through this series of covenants that had been established between Yahweh and their ancestors. So there was a covenant between Yahweh and Abraham, Abraham. As Genesis tells the story, God calls this man named Abram to go to the land he was calling him to and promised to make him a great nation, bless his descendants. He even promised that uh, through Abraham's descendants, eventually God, uh, the whole world would be blessed. And so the covenant was renewed, was more deeply formalized after Yahweh called Moses to help deliver the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt when they were given the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai and so on throughout their history. This is the story they're telling. The connection the people have with this God, they believe has been established and developed for centuries through this practice of making covenants. But where does the practice even come from? Why are these formal commitment ceremonies the way the relationship with God seems to be constructed? What's that about? Well, a study of ancient history demonstrates that the practice of covenanting isn't unique to the people of Israel. It was actually like a very important practice throughout the ancient world. From the earliest times that groups of people were relating, it seems that there were reasons for them to make formal agreements around how they were going to relate, the origins of what we would call a social contract. It makes sense, especially in primitive cultures in which there weren't strong legal systems to regulate and enforce how people could treat one another. There had to be some way of establishing norms of relating. And this often happened through these kind of sacred promises, these co covenants. In the era leading up to the Israelite tribes and their developing covenants, one of the primary sources we see uh, in history, one of the documents that we see the most of uh, from this era comes from the Hittite culture. Now the Hittites were a strong military people Often when they drew up a covenant, it was to define the terms of the relationship they were going to have with a group that they were kind of now taking under their authority. Does that make sense? So they conquer you and then they draw up a covenant with you. So the covenants were there to establish this relationship between, um, you know, between the person in charge and the people that were coming under them. And often part of the goal of the covenant was to make the case that the relationship was beneficial to both the Hittites and the people who were now under their authority. Does that make sense? Hittite covenants all followed the same basic formula. They generally included a preamble, some sort of introduction, a long historical prologue telling the story of the people. They made stipulations that the people were promising to commit to. There were provisions for where the covenant would be stored, how it would be publicly read. There were a list of witnesses to the covenant, which often included an appeal to the gods. And then there was a series of curses and blessings to enforce the covenant. Sacrifices were often made to secure the covenant. In fact, the terminology you might see sometimes is we cut a covenant. Because in a sense, um, by sacrificing an animal, it was like enacting the consequences of breaking the covenant, allowing the one making the pledge to name, like, if I break the terms of this, I will be like this slaughtered animal, okay? 
So as you can see from just our story, let alone all the other stories in the Hebrew Bible, many of these elements are found in Israelite covenant practices. But rather than establishing a relationship between two groups of people, the Israelite covenants are establishing a relationship between the people and Yahweh, people and God, entrusting that God is connected to them, will bless them, will care for them, and that the people in turn will be faithful in their worship of the divine. Understanding that norms for relating in the ancient world were often established through these kind of formal processes and even documents like covenants, I think it makes total sense that we'd see these covenants throughout the faith tradition of the Hebrew people. It's as if God, who is potentially beyond culture and time, was relating to a particular people through the cultural language and practices that those people had for bringing groups or bringing people together. As the Hebrew people connected with Yahweh, they came to understand the divine, to be promising, to be pledging, to be covenanting, to care for them, to bless them through these pledges. The the story of their history became the story of God continuing to be faithful to that promise to bless them, even when the people of Israel didn't hold up their part of the covenant. All of that, I say, to help us understand what these former exiles were doing in our story, okay? After learning more about the covenants they believed had been established between their ancestors and Yahweh, it was like these folks wanted to take on those sacred promises for themselves. They wanted to renew the covenant in their time. They wanted to renew, ultimately, the relationship their ancestors had had with the divine. But we live in a very different world than the Israelites, even the early Christians who also observed the covenant of the Last Supper. So what significance does any of this covenanting hold for us? Let's be honest. We inhabit a world that has a very different relationship with the idea of commitment altogether, right? Covenanting is not how we relate to people. In our current time and culture, you might say marriage is probably the commitment we hear folks talk about as the most potentially sacred or significant. And yet even that doesn't often carry a lot of weight. Around half of the marriages in the United States eventually end in divorce, and many couples choose not to get married at all. Truthfully, in our culture, the idea of binding commitments can feel foreign, if we're honest, pretty intense, maybe even kind of scary. Now, some of that might just be because we're not used to these kind of commitments, this idea of strong commitments. Strong social commitments aren't something we've had much experience with, potentially. Others of us may have had experiences that have been really negative. Perhaps we were in an abusive marriage. Perhaps we've been in a religious community that's used these kinds of calls to firm commitment in toxic ways, even abusive ways, as ways to control people by insisting that to love and please God, 
you have to do certain things like give a certain percentage of your money to the church or attend certain events or serve in specific ways. And that whole experience might have been really damaging and left folks feeling burned. So considering committing to a group of any kind or any group of people, it can feel real yucky to want to acknowledge all of that. Of course, throughout this series, I've been sharing some insights from Father Richard Rohr. We've been talking about his theory that the journey of personal and spiritual growth is a journey through cycles of order, disorder, and reorder. And for Father Rohr, the work of moving from disorder into reorder is this invitation I shared a few, a few Sundays ago to include and transcend. Include and transcend. A number of you were out of town when I shared this explanation of Roars on what that means. So I'll just share a bit of the passage here once again. Give us a reminder. He says, the human preference for binary thinking has kept us from seeing that when history evolves with a new idea, cultural mood, or consciousness, we need not, dare not actually, completely exclude the previous idea, mood, or consciousness. We grow best by including what was good and lasting in the previous stage and avoiding the overreaction and rebellious spirit that have characterized most revolutions up to now. This demands both humility and the capacity for non-dual thinking, qualities that are rare in most zealots, reformers, and revolutionaries. This nonviolent compromise can most simply be stated as include and transcend. It's at the core of what we mean by wisdom and by nonviolence. As it applies here, we can trust and even need certain kinds of disorder to clarify what our original order meant, lacked, or intended. If we can rightly achieve an integration of original plan plus correctives, rule plus the exception that proves the rule, order plus disorder, we have what I am calling reorder. So if Rohr's logic is correct, then there's something helpful to be carried forward from this ancient custom of making formal commitments like covenants. Yes, in some way, those commitments may have been used by people in power to bolster their control. And that practice, of course, we want to transform right? We don't want to bring that with us, that abusive behavioral control. I'm not interested in asking everyone in Haven to like enact anew what that Jewish community did in Jerusalem 2,500 years ago. We're not doing that today, okay? Just be, be, be settled. <laughs> but I do wonder if they were onto something helpful that might be useful for us in our in our desire to uh, reorder, if there might be something about this idea of renewing sacred commitments that might be useful. As I've been thinking about what is it about commitments that might be useful this week, a couple of things have come to mind. The first is that I think to have a sense of commitment is helpful for others we are in relationship with, right? Having a sense that others take seriously the relationship and are willing to show up, even through challenge, 
can establish a sense of safety, right? We all feel it when we know that somebody we're in relationship with is gonna, is gonna be there when we get sick, when things get hard, it matters. When, they, when, when you send out an invite to a dinner party, it's nice to know if people are coming, <laughs> right? There's something to that that helps you feel safer with that person. Of course, this is true ideally in marriage, in family life. It goes beyond that too, though. I did a lot of theater and music growing up, and I understood from a young age doing that that my castmates or my choir mates or my bandmates, they were counting on me. And if I didn't show up, if I didn't play the part they were expecting me to play, yeah, I would really let them down. The whole thing wouldn't quite work. They needed me. I needed them to follow through. I remember one incident when I was in a high school play. Uh, I was in a play with a kid who had a total lack of commitment. And in the middle of a performance, he just decided he thought the whole thing was ridiculous. And so while we're in a scene, I am saying my lines and he just started laughing at me. And then he started pointing at me and then he walked off the stage. I, I ad-libbed the best I could, but it sucked. It was a horrible experience, right? Like your base, the whole experience of, of being in a play or playing on a sports team or playing in a band, you're, you're entrusting yourself and the experience to a group of people to be there with you. Demonstrating commitment communicates to others we can be trusted to show up and support them just as we also want to be supported. But I don't think commitments are simply about what they do for other people. I also think there is an element of them that's helpful for ourselves. Like when a doctor swears the Hippocratic Oath, when a witness is sworn in before testifying in court, right? When a pastor <laughs> takes an ordination vow, in an ideal world, that does something to you internally, right? It calls you to take what you're doing seriously, to recognize you're making yourself accountable in a deeper way. I'm, I'm taking my life, people's lives into my hands, the doctor is saying, right? Uh, my, my testimony in the court of law is taking someone's life into my hands, potentially. As a pastor, I think of it the same way. You're making yourself accountable. I think this sense of making commitments for ourselves has to be part of what, we, what it means when we think of spiritual commitments. Like, I personally don't think God needs me to promise anything in terms of my own spirituality. God is fine. God is able to take care of God's self. God, my promise to show up isn't going to make God feel more secure, right? But it is helpful for me to recognize that I've set an intention to pursue a spiritual path, to honor the divine as I understand them, to, to do that in, with a particular group of, of people. And that intention calls me forward. It calls me to a set of practices. It calls me to continue the spiritual journey, even when things feel hard. Something helpful, I think, about the season of COVID was that, in a sense, all of our commitments were just upended, right? And I think that's actually helpful. I think it's maybe a, a special gift 
um, that we're not given very often. COVID gave all of us an opportunity to bow out of any and all social obligations. And for many of us, that was a good thing because some of us also have a hard time with commitment in a different way. We have a hard time saying no. We may have a hard time not being over committed, going along with things just because we feel like we have to, not because we're really invested in our hearts, not because we really want to put our energy into them. But now it's kind of like we've had this reset. And as we go forward, I think we have the opportunity to rethink our connection to various communities, to various relationships, organizations, friendships, and so on. And as we do that rethinking, we may decide that there are some things we don't want to pick up again. Lots of people are quitting jobs for that very reason right now. They're recognizing this is never a job I really loved and I don't want to do it anymore. But we also have the opportunity to choose where in our reordering personal commitments are something we want to include. Now, I'm not here to tell you what those specific commitments should be for you. I'm not going to be prescribing a certain way of committing to Haven in this season, just to be clear. But I am going to invite each of you and myself to consider where the divine might be inviting us to think more deeply about how we hold commitment and what new commitments it might be meaningful for us to take in this season. And I have a feeling that that'll be different for different ones of us. I'll share one personal example of that as we end. As we've been in this season of reordering and beginning to gather as a community in new ways after COVID, Jeannie and I personally have felt the stirring to be more prayerful on behalf of all of you, on behalf of our Haven community. We've both felt, I think, independently and as a staff, a desire to spend less of our staff time just working on the logistics of Sundays and emails and all of that stuff, and more of our time in worship and prayer for the Haven community. And that's recently led us to kind of restructure how we meet our times and, and how we're going to use the balance of them and to honor a new commitment um, that we're, we are feeling led to make, to commit to praying specifically for various folks in the Haven community in a more systematic way. So we're gonna be establishing this new habit in the coming weeks. It's something I saw modeled at a church years ago and I feel led to try ourselves. Um, we're basically, each week, we're gonna choose a specific household. We just have a list, go through all the households um, in our Haven community. All of you will be in the rotation I'm going to reach out to you a week or so before it's your turn to be prayed for by Jeannie and Leah um, and just ask if you have any specific things we can be praying for. Also, if you're open to us sharing those with our intercessors like Connie and Sylvia and those who gather on Thursday nights, we're happy to do that too. If you'd rather if we didn't, that's totally fine as well. Um, and if you don't have anything specific, we'll just be lifting you up and asking for a divine blessing in your life, whatever that might look like. Now, we're not committing to this as the pastors of this church because we believe that something magical will happen when the pastors pray that wouldn't happen otherwise. Like, I, I'll just be honest. Like, my own relationship with, the, with how prayer works is I'm, I'm much more in the category of, like, it's a mystery to me. But I do know a component 
that I know from experience, and the reason I think Jeannie and I are making this commitment is that we recognize that the impact that praying for each of you has on us, okay? It softens our hearts toward you. It, we root for your rising in important ways when we are intentionally investing our devotional time and our heart space to your blessing. And both of us want more of that in our hearts. We want more of that in the work we're doing. We want more of that in our community. And so we're making that commitment. So as we end, I just want to invite you today to consider what this potentially strange to us ancient practice of covenant making might hold for you. Where would it be helpful for you to formalize some commitment to some group of people, some commitment to the divine? What practical steps might formalizing that include? Where are the places you might feel called to say, damn the flames, I need to be here. My prayer is that as we do that, we will also find the comfort and freedom that can come from knowing we are in something for the long haul. You know, it was only after we made that decision about our house that I could actually feel some sort of joy and freedom in the process. No longer were we being controlled by uncertainty. Is this the right thing? Is it the wrong thing? It was just kind of like, you know what? The decision is made. We're in. Hallelujah. May it be good. May you be in it, God. There was something comforting and knowing that while we couldn't predict the future or know how everything was going to work out, we could predict where we would be in that unknown future. As Jason and I approached 20 years of marriage, and we've had a lot of things shift in our marriage, I've many times felt that same comfort still, even as things shift, even as I don't know where things are going in terms of our life and what it will bring. I do know who I will be working through that with. Perhaps this too is what the divine wanted those ancestors to understand. That God is committed to them. And however faithful or faithless they may be, God always will be. I pray that we can experience that truth anew, anew for ourselves and give thanks for all the ways we've been sustained through such challenging circumstances like we've all been through in the last year plus. May the security of the divine's commitment to all of us give us strength, as well as the wisdom to discern what we are called to commit to and honor together. Amen. Both of these songs are kind of connected to these ideas, right? Kind of, of committing, of saying yes to something, of agreeing to... Um, you know, to show up for, for one another, um, for our community, for our faith. Um, and so we invite you to engage in that whatever way feels right to you.